Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I'll be talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that inspired their chosen path. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with William McKeever about his writing, his writing about sharks that's just incredible, and some of his favorite books. But first, I'll pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. So, William, Emperors of the Deep, Sharks, the Ocean's Most Mysterious, Most misunderstood and most important guardians. It's an amazing book. It's really a wonderful combination of both your personal experiences and a lot of in-depth research that you've clearly done. But what's what led you to write this book and what started you with your interest in the ocean overall? What's your what's your career path to becoming an author? Yes, well, Leslie, well, thank you for having me on the, the podcast. I'm obviously uh, delighted to be with you and talk about my favorite subject, uh, which is sharks. And I had a very different career. I started out in the world of finance, and um, I worked uh, as an analyst in, uh, in healthcare. And um, I decided that, uh, you know, I'd done that for a while, and I was looking to do something else with my life. And uh while I was doing this, you know, sometimes the universe has a way of the, putting something in, in front of you. And I was out in Montauk one weekend and uh, I stumbled on this big crowd. And as I walked through the crowd, I saw sharks that were dangling from yard from a yard arm and blood was streaming down. And uh, the sharks were on the also on the deck and they were being chopped up. And I had stumbled on a shark tournament. Now, this is where people go out to catch sharks for prize money and for bragging rights. And uh, they're catching makos and uh, really anything, thresher sharks, blue sharks. And when they're done with this weekend tournament, the sharks literally go into a dumpster. And then that dumpster is taken to a landfill in Long Island and they're thrown away. And that really got me very angry because I thought, first of all, these sharks haven't done anything. They don't deserve to be killed like this. And number two, I always had a sense that, you know, sharks are important. They clean the ocean. I kind of learned that in grade school. And um, plus the fact that um, I love the ocean. I always grew up in areas, we moved around a bit, but we were always near the ocean and I just, I just love the beach. So 
this this tournament really got me angry, and um, I decided that I was going to expose this. And so I took my camera, and over the next few months, whenever they had these shark tournaments, I recorded this and made a short documentary film about the shark tournaments. And um, and after that was over, I started to have questions in my mind about sharks. And, and so I started to do some research and I talked to scientists and then I thought, well, maybe I should dive with one. And, and I did that and so forth and so on. And, and so after a while I was completely hooked, no pun intended, <laughs> and uh, ended up having so much material on sharks. I thought, you know what, this would make a great book. And I also, ended up taking that short documentary film on shark tournaments and blew it up into a full length uh, feature length uh, film that's now available on Microsoft. If you go to their website and type in movies and put in Emperors of the Deep, you can, you can see the movie. So it all grew organically over time and um, I was really drawn into it and it was uh, a, a real labor of love. I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, it's a real joy to read the book. And I saw your trailer as well. It was at the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival, which was what first attracted me to your book because I had not seen it until it was um, noted after your film that you had a book available as well about sharks. So I appreciate all that. And um, your, your background in finance it sort of explains your introduction in a very soft way, your introduction of the economics of a live shark versus a dead shark, which if if nothing else should be really compelling to people to try to find ways to um, keep sharks alive. Although you do talk about commodification of them and as a resource rather than just as a, a creature that has a right to be on the world and in the planet. But um, have you found that people ha- are drawn? What what parts of your article, what parts of your book, I'm sorry, are people most drawn to? I think that um, there's sort of a fascination with sharks. And it, um, some of it goes back to when the movie Jaws came out and created this really myth about sharks. It's totally false and uh, sadly has engendered a lot of fear in people. So when they go to the ocean in the summertime, I've talked to, to many people who just won't go in the ocean. They think it's dangerous, which is really very sad. And um, I, I think that uh, people are drawn to this idea that sharks are really crucial to the marine ecosystem. And uh, we need sharks. And if we let the sharks go by the wayside, we are going to pay the consequences because they're at the top of the food chain. When you take out the top of the food chain or the bottom, you wreak havoc on the whole ecosystem. So people, I think, appreciate that. That's number one. Number two is that people just don't realize the uh, the way humans are treating sharks. There are 100 million sharks that are taken out of the ocean every year. It's unsustainable. It's it's unnecessary. And uh, people are shocked when they hear that. And, and I think that that kind of gets people thinking about sharks in a different way. And as you've been talking to people over the years, have you noticed a change in their attitude? Yeah, Leslie, I'm encouraged that um, I think we have started to see a turn that, you know, 
books and films, uh, Shark Week, although I have mixed feelings on Shark Week. Sometimes they'll so, show something that's actually scientific and, and useful, but then they still play the Jaws music theme in the background and, you know, because they know that plays to the audience. But I think people are more aware of this and more conscious that, that we need sharks. So I'm encouraged by that, but by no means are we anywhere near where we need to be. These shark tournaments that take place up and down the East Coast from Maine to Florida uh, have to stop. They should be outlawed. And, uh, and I think that people should, whenever they go in the supermarket, sometimes they'll, they'll see Mako shark um, uh, up in the, in the fish uh, section. Um, that's horrendous to have a apex predator that's in, literally endangered, uh, possibly going uh, to a point of no return, to be eating that. It's like going into the supermarket and saying, I'll have a hamburger, but make it lion, please. Yeah. It's, 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 it's something that just doesn't make any sense. But part of what um, came to, to me so much, I mean, I, I, I should know more about sharks than I do. I've been to the Ocean Film Festival for years, watching the far- shark movies and, and enjoying them and learning from them. But I guess I hadn't appreciated to your book that there are over 600 different species of shark. And each has got a different classification as far as threatened and endangered, where they are, what they what they're even whether they're omnivores or um, as hammerheads might be, or how they have their young. It's amazing that they're all classified within that big category of shark, and to an extent, all are represented as being apex predators. But I think people have a confusion about all of these different things. Because in the store, Mako is often not called Mako shark. It's just Mako. And so to try and pull all this together, I think, is is part of the educational system that we need and educational programs that folks like you are helping us with. So I really appreciate all that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and I think you raise a good point. And they, by the way, scientists continue to find new species of, of sharks. There were just a couple of months ago, a new shark that was discovered uh, off of South America that's literally like three inches long and has an interesting pocket behind its gills. They have no idea what that's for, but uh, the numbers keep going up. When I was doing research for the book and looking back at previous literature, there was one book I read that there are 250 species of sharks, and here we are well more than, than, than double that. I suspect that we'll find some more. And, you know, it's remarkable. Sharks have been on the planet in some form or another for uh, almost 500 million years. And as a consequence of evolution, they have insinuated themselves in virtually every ecosystem around the planet, from the, the Greenland, the Arctic Circle, uh, all the way down to, to the tropics, and from coastal areas to pelagic or deep sea areas. They're really everywhere. Now, a lot of people think they're, you know, the big and dangerous and scary. And, and in fact, the reality is, is there are really only a few sharks that we need to, to uh, think about as, as being cautious uh, when, we're, when, when we're in the ocean. And those are uh, the big three, which is a great white, a tiger shark, and a bull shark. And other species of sharks, like the cat shark family, they're about three feet long and they're, they're kind of cute and they've got different c- colors on them and their eyes are 
very bright uh, a blue, and they they live two thousand feet below the ocean, and they they actually literally glow in the dark so they can see each other. And those sharks are utterly harmless. You probably would never see one because they're they're so deep, and and that's the vast majority uh, of sharks that are like that. Um, and and even if you get the ones that are a little bigger, that maybe four or five feet in length, like a like a sand tiger shark, um, the, even those you don't have to worry about because uh, you know the the big sharks that I mentioned have serrated teeth. And so they, you know, they cut into the seal, they cut into the tuna. That's their job in nature is to, is to, as an apex predator, keep other species, keep those populations in line so that no one species dominates the system. That's a very important role for an apex predator. And it's true on land with wolves and what they do and virtually uh, everywhere. So when, but when, they, when you get some sharks that are, farther down, they're actually not apex predators. They're sort of what they call meso predators. They're middle predators. Like the sand tiger that I talked about, they're four or five feet. If you look at their teeth, they're like an alligator tooth. It's meant for grabbing, hold, and swallow. They cannot chop anything or chew anything up. So if you ran into a sand tiger and you were out in the water, maybe you know 25 feet deep, it couldn't do anything because it can't swallow a six, six or five foot five uh, person. So those, again, I think it, it's a lot of education that's involved in this. But I think the, the clear point is that people are spending way too much psychic energy worrying about shark attacks. And that's a whole other <laughs> subject which we can get into, uh, it, you know, if you want. But one of the one of the things that I like to do is because I love the ocean so much. It's so fabulous. I, when someone, it, it really, it's very sad to me when someone says, you know, I don't want my child swimming or I don't want to go swimming because of sharks. And I just, I just said, no, you got to understand something. Read the book. Actually, if you don't, you don't have to read my book, just go out. The information is out there and, and learn about yourself that you don't have to worry. Sure. We, we take precautions. I mean, nobody wants to swim a quarter mile out and start splashing around. That's, you know, crazy, but, uh, but just staying within the shoreline is perfectly safe. So anyway, my you know I, I get on a bunch of uh, tangents here, but the but the, the key takeaway is that uh, the sharks have these uh, various species, and they all perform very important functions, and that's something that we should all cherish about them. And it's something that does come through in your book, and you're right that they they have just such a great varied um, range of habitats. Some seem to overlap a lot, but the the diversity within them is is great, and so I I was also glad that you covered my favorite shark, the hammerhead, and the ones that go from the large, you know, photogenic ones we see to the very small ones. But I just think they're amazingly fascinating, and um, just just because of their look and and they're they're sort of they are prehistoric looking more to me than other shark types. And yet I didn't realize that they had that different um, sensory aspect to, to their, um, that broad hammerhead, that it works with two different noses and, and such. Talk about them. I love them. Yeah, I, I really love hammerheads. And I, I've had the really distinct pleasure and honor of, of swimming with sharks in and out of, out of a cage. I've never had a swim with a hammerhead, but I am, 
I, I, I'm determined to do that one of these days. And um, actually, they have a very small mouth. If you look at their mouth, it's sort of a U-shaped, and it's only about nine inches long. So again, you could uh, hammerheads can be quite large. They can be 12, 13 feet, weigh over 1,000 pounds. But it's very unusual to have any negative encounter with a hammerhead. But anyway, um, so yeah, while they look prehistoric, they're actually a relatively new shark on the scene. They've only been around for about uh, 2 million years out of that, when you think about it, over 500 million years. And they've developed these amazing adaptations. You know, the eyes, for one, are, people wondered, how, what is the purpose of that? And then they realized that um, the shark can see in a 360-degree view of their environment. And you think, wow, what an advantage that is as a predator and that capability. Two is that uh, that nose area is filled with all, it's like a, I think of it as a jet aircraft. It's got all kinds of sensors in there, constantly looking out. They can sense electricity at even minute levels. And so they're able to see what creatures are out there. In fact, when they go after the uh, stingrays, which is their favorite uh, fish to eat, and those stingrays hide in the sand, that hammerhead shark will take its nose and sweep back and forth like a minesweeper, and it can detect the electrical signal from that stingray and and uh, take them out. And many uh, hammerheads end up getting uh, the the uh, stingrays actually in their uh, in the, in in their mouth area, but that's again that that's their job. That's what they uh, were made to do in, in nature's scheme of things. And uh, and so these these hammerheads are uh, truly remarkable. Now the tragedy for me is that you know people love the big dorsal fin. It's two three feet, much bigger than than the other sharks. And what a trophy, sadly, that makes uh, for some people. Now. A lot of people come to me and say, well, you know, I do fish and catch and release. What's the problem with that? And, you know, I, you know, and I think that's, that's something that um, is something you should reconsider because even though sharks are, are big and strong and weigh, you know, over a thousand pounds, they can be very delicate. And what can happen when they're caught is that the lactic acid builds up in their system and these animals are fighting for their lives. And so while you may have them on the line for an hour or so and then cut them loose and think, oh, they'll be fine, they'll literally die from those injuries uh, established from that uh, fight. And actually the most sensitive to catch and release is the hammerhead shark. They very rarely encounter, uh, survive uh, being caught on the line. Uh, tiger sharks can do better because they're they're bigger and and pretty tough customers, but uh, you know that that hammerhead's uh, you know delicate and um, so I just I'm with you Leslie I, they're they're one of my favorites and one of these days I'm I'm going to jump in the water with one. So I had the um, special opportunity to, to to see one when I was diving in Cozumel years ago and. I can still remember that silhouette and it was gorgeous and just part of my reason for liking them is having seen one in, in, in the wild. But I hope you have the same opportunity soon. Yeah, um, I'm jealous. <laughs> That's great <laughs> that, that, that happened for you. And of course, the uh, you know we love it because you know they're so beautiful and majestic. And you know, sadly, it's um, it's the fins that um, 
end up getting them into trouble because there's the bigger, the longer the fin, the more attractive it is. And you, we all know about the Chinese shark fin soup market and the fact that they take 70 million sharks a year and they take those fins and uh, put them in soup, which is utterly ridiculous. It actually goes back to the Chinese emperors when they started the, uh, uh, the, the whole tradition thinking that this is a way to show off, that you've got status, that you can serve shark fin soup. And so throughout Asia, if you're at a wedding or an event and you show shark fin soup, everybody thinks, oh, this, this guy's doing all right. So it's a, uh, it's a case where these fins can attract um, people that, that will kill these sharks and, and sell the fins. And it brings, brings us actually back to the, the beginning of our uh, conversation, Leslie, where uh, you know, we talked about the value of these sharks. So, yeah, you can chop uh, all the fins off and you can get anywhere from, depending on the fin, $20 to $100, um, uh, you know, for the fins. But if you let that fish stay in the water and you do what we like to do, which is scuba diving and experiencing them and the money that we would pay to people who operate these kind of shark uh, dive operations, that shark is worth over three years, and this was uh, in a National Geographic study, um, approximately two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars over the shark's uh, lifetime. So it's it's real money. And I one of the things I'm on a mission to do is to encourage people to go go dive with a shark. It's one of the safest things you can do. And uh, you know, uh, there's some uh, good, there's one very good uh, operator off of Montauk, another one up in Rhode Island. Uh, Jupiter Inlet in Florida has actually no cage diving. You just jump over the side of the boat and they throw tuna fillets out and the sharks come over and you everybody looks at each other. And then uh, you climb back in the boat. And I, I, I had a great experience. I, I actually dove with uh, bull sharks and had a it looked, came eye to eye with a couple of them, and, and it was thrilling. I, I just loved it. So that's the kind of experience that people should do. And then that generates jobs and income and much better than, than uh, killing these sharks in tournaments. Oh, I certainly agree with you. But a, a thought that just came to me, and I don't really want to explore it because I'm way over my head when I get into anything financial other than trying to pay my credit card bill every month. But it seems like with shark finning, the the money all channels upward into one or two apex sellers. And so it's a, a very limited economy because many of the people who are part of the, the finning process get very little, if nothing, as because they're working on these ships that have grabbed them off the street and forced them into to slavery. But with the sort of recreational diving, the enjoyment, even the benefits coming to the environment from having the sharks in the ocean, that's a more dispersed economy. And so many, many people get to enjoy that. But there's not that couple of people in power having the, the funding coming directly into their coffers. And so it's the um, sometimes we, we, well, we put those big values onto things, the actual people receiving the values are not um, of an equal kind of quantity. And so it's it's a more dispersed economy. Just something for you to think about in your financial moments. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you raised that because, uh, you know, the, uh, as I point out in, in the book, the vast majority of fishing on the high seas, particularly in the Pacific Ocean, where they're trying to get tuna, uh, they're catching a lot of sharks. And the people who work on those boats, um, as you pointed out, they're, they're slaves or if they're paid, it's minuscule. I mean, it's a dollar or two a day. They are allowed to um, keep the shark fins and sell them, and they make money on that, uh, which doesn't amount to very much anyway. And then farther up the chain, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the smuggling, the, uh, the handoffs, the deals, and where the shark fins end up in Hong Kong. Um, as you said, there's a, a small group of people that are doing very well uh, w- with that with that trade. And uh, you know, I like uh, uh, just a, a fellow colleague of mine, Madison Stewart. May have, may have heard of her. She she's in Indonesia and, and various places. And what she did, she went to the villagers and who had been finning sharks and said, you know, you can make actually more money if you stop finning sharks, and we will pay you to take people out on the boat and either snorkel or scuba dive with the sharks and you'll make more money. And they started doing that and the villagers uh, loved it. They, they made more money. I think they felt better about their local environment that they weren't uh, hurting it a- anymore and uh, everybody benefited. So it's that, you know, the lot, a lot of people think that you've got to keep doing what you've been doing because that's, you've got to protect jobs. Well, sometimes if you change what you're doing, you actually create more jobs and more money. And it's and that's certainly true with sharks. True. And that's a, a good example of what we can be doing in the future to keep keep on a better track. You you use in your book a phrase that uh, just struck with me because it was a phrase my mother taught me when I was about nine or ten years old. Don't know why she used it. She was a mathematician, but it's Ontology recapitulates phylogeny, the idea that the development of any individual in utero or in shell or wherever it is reproduces or replicates the development of them through the phylum. And so I'm wondering, first of all, what attracted you to that phrase? Granted, my attraction to it is my mother teaching it to me when I was 10, and I would wander around and say it, but hadn't thought of it for years. But do you think there's also some um, in, in there somewhere is the explanation for why sharks have fins and that they've become such a, a different fin than other fish have? Well, than any other mammal has, I guess. Yeah, I, I was always fascinated by the the development of sharks and going back 500 million years, those sharks actually look very different from modern sharks. Some of them um, had uh, teeth like a, uh, you know, when you think about that saw when you're in a, in a carpenter shop, the single wheel saw, some of them had teeth like that. And uh, the list goes on and on that some of them had plates on the, on their bodies. And, and over time, um, there was a case of obviously evolution at work. And so you had these developments that took place. And, um, and when you understand them, it just gives, at least for me, greater, greater appreciation. So I'll give you a, give you a good, good example. So great white sharks, uh, they're the great nomads of the ocean. 
and they travel tremendous distances. In fact, there was one that traveled from South Africa to Australia and back uh, in, a, in just a few months. And it was a straight line. They had the tagging data. And how that shark figured it out in a straight line, I don't know. If I did it, I'd get lost and be all over the place. But the way they can travel those great distances and conserve energy is they have these big, wide fins. And so what they do is they'll start near the surface, wiggle their tail, and that pushes them forward, and they'll sink a little bit. And then they'll wiggle the tail and go forward again, and they'll sink a little bit more. Well, they're obviously not putting any effort into the time when they are sinking, but they're moving forward. So they're able to cover more distance with less energy. And then, you know, down the road, they'll have to rise to the surface, but that doesn't take uh, too much energy. And they start the process again. And it's those fins that are so wide and, and like the, for those who are uh, like the science, uh, the Bernoulli effect, same thing with an airplane wing. When a, a fluid passes over, over a wing, it provides lift, and that's happening to the sharks. Uh, one of the reasons why they have to keep moving, because that, that uh, lift keeps them afloat. They don't have a swim bladder. So if, you, if they don't swim, they literally sink to the bottom. And that's the tragedy of when the sharks are finned, because when the fins are gone, they literally sink to the bottom and suffocate to death. But anyway, I, I get uh, on a tangent. So back to the to the point about you know their fins, their capabilities. Blue sharks are the same way. Blue sharks are um, deep water or pelagic sharks. They have very long fins, very slender. They're shaped like torpedoes, so there's very little drag in them. And um, and uh, they're you know they can go on and on about all their you know different uh, capabilities that uh, that they develop and. Uh, it's 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 fascinating to uh, to think about how they've developed over these 500 million years and let's hope they keep developing for at least another million but um you do spend time in your book talking about different conservation programs and so um instead of writing about the emperors of the deep if you were the emperor overseeing policy and management of the deep what would you want to do most to provide for conservation, conservation of sharks or their ecosystems or whatever it might be that would be important to those those magnificent creatures? Yeah. Well, of course, that's my favorite question because then I, I, get, <laughs> I get to be the emperor. And, I, and um, I, there are so many things that, that I would do. And, you know, and these the things that we can do are very straightforward. Um and simple to implement. Now, it's not easy to implement them because we run into resistance and people like to do what they've been doing. But there's so many things we can do. Number one, easy thing, get rid of the shark tournaments. Number two is uh, we've got to have greater protections. So mako sharks, you can't touch a mako shark like we have today with great white sharks. You cannot land a great white shark on your boat and kill it. That is illegal. You go to jail as you should. Um, I would incorporate that for so many other species that are endangered, like makos, or or even even threatened, like uh, hammerhead sharks. And then, and you know, in our waters, I think we do as a country 
a relatively good job of managing our resources. Nothing is is ever uh, perfect, but we you know we we do a good job. And I think that the real problem is out in these uh, open areas in the Pacific Ocean. And I would go to those groups and I would have them ban longline fishing. And just a quick introduction, longline fishing is a rather insidious way of, of catching tuna and sharks. And you put a line out and it's one single line and attached at intervals of 10 feet or so are baited hooks. And that line can be 50 to 75 miles long. In some cases, people I've, interv I've interviewed, the line can be 150 miles long. And they'll let it soak overnight and uh, after they set it. And then when they bring the line in the next day, you put a baited hook in the water, you're going to catch lots of things, seabirds, turtles, um, different kinds of fish that you don't want. And it's all what's called bycatch, and it gets thrown back. And they, these things are, are usually dead. And um, so I think we've got we've to ban that way of fishing. And two is that we've got to have a way of stopping this, this spinning that's going on and stop the shark fin trade. And, and that's what I would do. And I suppose the, the last thing, if I could, since I'm on my, my throne, <laughs> I, I would say that the oceans have the ability to recover from the worst actions of mankind. And right now, the worst thing that we're doing is we're overexploiting the oceans. And the, this idea, was, and I remember this growing up, the view was, my, I remember my father saying, there's so much in the ocean, it's an inexhaustible supply. You, you'll never be able to take it out. Well, now we know that's actually quite, quite wrong. And so we need to let nature, give nature time to recover, repair itself. And it will do that. The best thing is let nature do it. If we get involved, we're going to screw it up. So there are these marine protected areas that are out today. And in a marine protected area, you cordon off. Uh, an area. So it might be some areas of the Pacific, it's so huge, you could have an area as big as the state of Rhode Island, and there's no fishing that can take place in there, period, nothing. Now, what will happen is in that area, all the fish will get together, and, and as fish do, they make other fish, and, and so the ecosystem recovers, and then those fish leave the marine protected area and swim out to other areas that those fish can be caught. And today, um, we have approximately 3% of the world's oceans in marine protected areas. And uh, scientists have concluded we need 30% of the world's oceans in marine protected areas. And uh, we've got to get there quickly to, to protect the oceans. It's actually in the own interests of the commercial fishermen to have this happen so they will have enough of the big predators that people like to eat, like tuna and swordfish and, and all kinds of other uh, fish. So if we can get the mindset of uh, people who in turn can then influence their legislatures and, and uh, ruling bodies, get more marine protected areas out there, we'd have more fish to eat, we'd save the environment, we would be better off ourselves if we could do that sort of thing. So just to sum up on this thing, I would say marine protected areas are number one. 
And then number two is address this, this wild outlaw fishing in the Pacific Ocean where it's anything goes. Stop the long line fishing. Stop the slavery. Stop the, the uh, insane uh, binning. And, um, and do these things that um, are actually good for the ocean and ourselves. Couldn't agree more. And the, the 30 by 30 program is such a great idea of that, too, of trying to get 30% of the ocean areas protected by 2030. It's, it's, a, it's a big effort to do in the next, what, 17 years, but it would be great if we could reach that. And I work a lot in, in climate change issues, sea level rise in particular, and I remember the arguments being made for years that the ocean is so vast, it could take all amounts of, of heat and thermal energy or all amounts of acidification and, and just dilute it all and there'd be no real effect on the ocean that we see because it's too vast to be affected by human activity. I think we're realizing in so many different areas that we are, as you say in your book, we are the top predator and we are the 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 biggest apex creature on earth these days, able to influence so much. It really is. It's eye opening. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, the, you know, the, the oceans have saved us because, you know, we put so much carbon into the atmosphere and the oceans have absorbed uh, 80. I, I forget the exact numbers. Don't hold it to me. It's something like 70 or 80% of, of the carbon so we're we're at lucky at only one and a half degree uh, Celsius increase. Now the oceans have likewise warmed, as has the uh, the air temperature, and the oceans um, have warmed uh, thus uh, from 1900 to today by one and a half degrees Celsius. Well, that's of course you convert to Fahrenheit. That's about almost three, about approximately three degrees. And while that may not seem like a lot, that is wreaking havoc on fish species and sharks. So I'll give you a quick example, if, if you want to hear it, on, uh, on black tip sharks. They uh, typically migrate from North Carolina in the summertime to Florida in the wintertime. And they stick very close to the coast, and black tip sharks are, you know, they're mezzo predators. They're about five, six feet. They're not something you usually have to, to worry about. And um, now what's happening is that the, as the water has warmed, they have to go much farther north in the summertime to get the temperatures that, that they want. So where they would have stopped in North Carolina, now they're coming up to my neck of the woods uh, off of Long Island. And of course, they've never been here before. And so that's creating problem with the sharks that are here, like the sand tigers and and uh, some of the others, and and so it, we, uh, then on the reverse, the tie, the uh, black tip sharks in the uh, winter time don't have to go all the way down to Miami and the Florida Keys to get the temperatures they like, so they stop around Jacksonville, and by not going through that area, they're not doing the spring cleaning that we really want sharks to do, I and mean, that's one of their functions is to cleaned, uh, get rid of or eat diseased fish and keep the, the fish populations uh, healthy. Uh, there is, I suppose, one slight benefit in that there are not as many uh, sharks where the surfers are. So we're actually seeing a decline in shark attacks as a result. 
but the uh, but but the point being that just this one shark is having a huge change in its migration pattern, and of course the same thing is happening for tiger sharks in South Africa and all around the world, and hammerheads are ending up in the Celtic Sea where they've never been there before. So uh, we just sadly don't know what the impact is going to be, but it's it's creating great stress on sharks and other creatures. And sharks have to find things to eat. And so if their their dominant food species is moving further to the north, either they've got to figure that out and move north with them, or they're not going to persist where they are or persist at all. It's, I mean, it's happening everywhere. It's not just an ocean phenomena for sharks, but as we're seeing these shifts in what can survive, we're actually seeing breakups of different ecosystems because certain species have different tolerances. They've been in the same place together for hundreds, thousands of years, but as one goes more to the salt tolerant, one goes more to you know turbidity concerns, one goes to temperature concerns, they're not going to be congregated in the same places in the future. It's going to be, we're going to see big changes. But I have a couple of quick questions before we finish this. Do you have a favorite shark? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like a mother who loves all of his, all of her children equally, and uh, I don't have any favorites. But uh, anyway, I'm, uh, I would say that uh, the tiger shark, just I, I love the stripes. Oh. And, uh, you know, they're very smart. They're, um, and they, they have this fearsome reputation. You got to be respectful. But I have seen them interact mm-hmm. with, I have not dived with one, but when I was doing research and and talked to divers and and seeing YouTube new clips, they actually are very curious and they can be touched. And you see people rubbing their noses and they seem to enjoy it. And I think they're very smart. Uh, they're they're beautiful. They're you know the big strong uh, shark. They're kind of like the uh, all pro uh, tackle that. Um, Really, it dominates the oceans, and uh, of course, they're very they're very important, uh, particularly in seagrass environments, because they they scare the the turtles and the dugongs enough so that they just don't come in and eat all the seagrass. And by protecting that seagrass, there's kind of the tigers are the guardians of the of the seagrass. They let all those little fish grow in the seagrass and develop and grow up and and leave, which is important for the ecosystem. So they, they do that very important job of uh, protecting the seagrass beds. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's overall, it's a, just a remarkable fish. Wonderful. Do you have any quick update on Mary Lee since your book? Has she been re rediscovered? Yeah. I, you know, I, um, I haven't seen the latest on that. Um, I think she stopped pinging. Uh, these tags have a, a shelf life of a few years, and uh, I think she's well past the the due date for that tag to uh, to work consistently. So, um, yeah, I, I think the uh, you know the tagging. Uh, you know, I have some mixed feelings on that because when you tag a shark, it can be very stressful uh, for the animal. Their dorsal fin is like our hand. It's incredibly intricate. There's a lot of nerves and specialized muscles to help the shark swim efficiently. 
And when you drill a hole, as some of these people do, to put to uh, bolt a tag into the dorsal fin, it's very stressful for the shark. They've got to carry that thing around. It typically gets uh, covered with, with algae or barnacles, which adds more weight. Sometimes it can get infected. Um, so I mm. think we're doing far too yeah. much uh, shark tagging, considering, you know, I think 20 years ago, we didn't know a lot. We know a lot more. Do we need to keep doing this? And I think if we are going to, then we need to have non-invasive tags. And there are scientists working on that. And as far as I'm concerned, they can't come to the market soon enough. So, so I have a bit of a, of a split uh, view on, on these uh, shark tags. I can understand that, especially if somebody wanted to drill into my hand to figure out where I was going. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a coastal idea, and um, part of being on the coast are beaches. Do you have a favorite beach? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I grew up going to, uh, uh, grew up just outside of Philadelphia. We would go to the, the Jersey beaches, uh, or shore as, as, as it's known, and um I just love the beaches there because it's a very gradual fall off. So you get a lot of good waves coming in for body surfing and, and that, that sort of stuff. Of course, Long Island is uh, on the east end is, is lovely. Hard to have a, have a favorite, but um, I, you know, put a gun to my head. I, you know, I, I like the, uh, the Cape and the islands. I like that area a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, William. This has been a great talk. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from your book, a lot from talking with you today. So thank you so much for being on Shorewards. Well, Lizzie, it was great to be here and so nice to chat with you. And thank you for all your questions and everything you do. And uh, looking forward to keeping in touch with you. I hope so. As I said at the beginning of this program, we do have sponsors. It's an important part of ASPN and in supporting all of the podcasts and, and also Coastal News Today. If you want more information about how to become a sponsor yourself, you can get in touch with Tyler Buckingham at Tyler at Coastal News Today. That's all one word, coastalnewstoday.com. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Shorewords. And I think that this time with William McIver has been amazing, as is his book. It's been both educational and inspiring. And I hope it encourages you to look at the ocean and at sharks in a different way. But till next time, please enjoy the coast and your views toward the shore. Music